Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 92 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Hope you're having a uh, fantastic start to the week. And what's going on with me, man? I was just uh, talking to John. I'll bring up here in a minute about been getting up at 4 a.m. the last few days. So I'm like, I don't really know which way is up. I don't know. I was just trying to read a book before and I was just staring at the pages. Do you ever have that where you just read the same chapter about 10 times? So yeah, I made this commitment. I want to get up at 4am every day for all of September. So a 30-day commitment. Why? I don't know why. You know, do you need a why? It felt like a good idea. It's a challenge. It feels difficult. A lot of people that I admire do it. So I wanted to to give it a go. It's going to take a few days of adjustment, but so far I've enjoyed it. I went for long walk this morning, you know, the sun was coming up. Yeah, already enjoying the early mornings, but just feeling a little bit out of it. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, did a Q&A video yesterday on Facebook. So answered a bunch of uncomfortable questions, tried to get my best honest vulnerable answers. So if you want to go and check that out, some of the questions were around my biggest fears. What are some of the things I still haven't confronted or overcome? What else is in there, man? Uh, someone asked about my fantasies. <laughs> I didn't answer that one, but there was lots of lots of good questions. So if you want to go and uh, learn a little bit more about me and uh, have a little bit more of an intimate conversation, then that's up on my Facebook just underneath this video. Cool. Let's get on with the show. So I'd like to introduce my guest and uh, I'm going to welcome him to the show. John, great to see you. Hey, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thanks for spending your Labor Day with me. I know it's a day off for most people. <laughs> you know, when you get into the world that we're in, I don't know if you get days off. Yeah, I think about that often. Like I, I work on the weekend, like whatever work is, you know, writing or talking to clients or whatever. Or even it doesn't, thinking it doesn't about like work. work. Yeah, thinking about work, thinking about work. But yeah, I appreciate having you here, man. So you, you uh, have had a very interesting life, which we're going to dive into. I uh, grew up in Arizona, talked about being a high school dropout, ended up in prison for a little bit, and then went on to create a multi-million dollar business. And you've just uh, put out a book. So thanks for being with us. I'm excited to dive in and learn a little bit more about your story. Well, I'm really excited to be here. And, and what I'm really excited is uh, how I've been able to find your show and, and dig into it. I really love what you do. I really love, you know, the messages that you share with people. So I'm just honored to be a part of it. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, yeah, that really means a lot. I, you know, I put a lot into this. We were just talking before. It's almost three years I've been doing this show in, in different formats. And so... You know, when I first started, I was just like, right, I want to do 100 episodes. Doesn't matter what happens. Wasn't really worried about who was watching. And I sort of continued that for the day. I really just do it to meet interesting people, have good conversations and hopefully inspire some people. So yeah, always appreciative when somebody digs it. So thanks for that. Well, I appreciate you. Thanks, man. So take us back. Give us a, a little bit of an insight, the, some of the, uh, the turning points in your life. Give us the, the you know, two-minute summary of your life, how you ended up at this point. Okay. Well. We can say I, I did very poorly in school, and that's a whole other conversation. I, don't, I didn't do poorly in school because I wasn't smart. I did poorly in school because I didn't fit. You know, mm. I, I didn't think in the manner, in the structured manner that school wanted, uh, and it became pretty evident. And so when I was 17, through a few different turns and decisions between me and my dad, I wound up uh, a high school dropout and uh, left the house. And I uh, was kind of on my own. And when you're 17 and on your own and not very smart, you make some pretty poor choices. And some of those choices uh, led me to 
visit certain facilities here in Arizona because I <laughs> let's face it, you don't you don't get arrested because you're handing out money to homeless people. Uh, that was how I started my adult and pre-adult life was just kind of a, a drain on society. And uh, if you fast forward 25 years today, I've been married for 20 of it to just an amazing, amazing woman. I've got three awesome kids. I've got a successful business and I've written a, written a few books. And because of some of the things I've learned, I've been able to turn that around. And I've kind of learned that life is what you make it. You're the product of, you're the results of the choices you've made, not the hand that was dealt you. And um, it's been a roller coaster. Yeah, I'm sure it has. Uh, the interesting thing about America is that there's a lot of like rags to riches story. Like the story of America is sort of built on the rags to riches, come here with nothing and and create your life. And if you work hard, you've got a shot at making it. You know, everybody has a shot at making it. But I think what's interesting is a lot of people don't realize just how tough it is, to, how difficult it is to go from someone that was a high school dropout that was in prison to actually, you know, what you said, life is what you make it, creating something of your life and making something. Just how challenging and actually uncommon it is to actually be successful in that transition. You know, yeah, it's it's such a dichotomy because being stupid teaches you the fastest way to no longer be stupid, you know? <laughs> and so if you're if you're stupid and you pay attention, you realize just what you did that got you where you are. You know, one of the things I talk about all the time when I go speak, when I started speaking, I started speaking at uh, rehab facilities and juvenile probations, you know, kind of my my class of people. And uh, I started speaking to him and saying, guys, there's something else out there for you. The world hasn't ended because you're here, you know. And one of the things I used to talk about was that when I was in jails, when I was detained, right, everybody in jail is innocent. If you ask them, hey, what happened? Oh, somebody put that dope in my backpack. They just asked me to drive the truck. I didn't know what was right. in it. You know, oh, he came at me first. You know, everybody in jail is innocent. And when you get out in the real world, and, and I spent some time studying successful people because that's what I wanted to be. Every successful person I knew was guilty. And it blew my mind that being innocent in your mind landed you in all the places I didn't want to go. But taking responsibility and saying, look, this is where I screwed up and this is what I did wrong and this is how I could fix it, landed people exactly where I wanted to go. and so. The rags to riches in America story is true as as long as you're paying attention and willing to accept, you know, your role in wherever you're at today and understand that it's up to you to get to where you want to be tomorrow. Then then it is common and it is easy. And America's, from what I understand, it's a great place to do it. Yeah, I think it's still a great place to do it. America has plenty of challenges and it's, you know, it's going through a bit of a, a weird moment at the moment. But I still think, you know, this is still an incredible land of opportunity and, and there's uh, more good, hardworking people here than there are, you know, <laughs> uh, not that. <laughs> so uh, one thing that I'm interested about because uh, it relates to me and it's my show, so I get to ask the question. Uh, I didn't do well at school either. and you know, I I wasn't a stupid person, but because I didn't do well at school, I had a story that I was stupid. I really thought, man, I, I'm a real, I just thought I wasn't smart. You know, I just thought I wasn't smart. And 
it took me a long, long time to overcome that. A long, long time. It was a real trigger for me and it was something that I, I really had to work around because I realized after I, I started getting into some adult learning and, and getting into things that I did enjoy and reading some books and stuff, that actually I absorbed information very well in, in the right ways that, that I took it in. And so started to realize you know, in my 20s that I was actually quite intelligent, yet I'd spent the first 25 years thinking I was stupid. So you talk about being dumb, but how did you overcome that or how did you reframe that for yourself? I'll be honest with you. I didn't start believing. I spent, I spent the majority of my career as, as a blue-collar worker because I didn't think I was smart enough to, to make a living using my mind for the same reasons that, that you probably did. Bad grades in school. You know, teachers say, well, he did bad on the test. He doesn't, he doesn't understand the subject. And for me, that realization has really been recent I, within the last five or six years that wow. I, I'm, I'm really not stupid. The story in my head was that I'm just kind of a dumb hillbilly and it's not true. It's turned out not to be true. And, and, you know, Seth Godin talks a lot about the problems with school and the, and the problems with school systems. And, you know, he says, we spend a decade and a half teaching our kids to be generalists and then put them out in the world where the world rewards specialists. And I wasn't good at being a generalist. You know, I wasn't good at, at okay, I, you know, studying science and organizing my time so that I could study math afterwards and then go read and then go. I wasn't good at that. But if you give me a book to write, I can sit down and write. Give me a business to build. If I'm not focused on PE <laughs> and geometry, if I'm just focused on building the company, <laughs> I'm good at, at it. But the world rewards focus. The world rewards um, vision. School doesn't. School doesn't reward focus. School rewards generalists who can manage their time and who can see through the material to the test questions and then forget the test questions and see through to the next test questions. That isn't me. That's not me. But when it comes to vision, when it comes to creating, I am smart. I'm very good at that. And there's no room for that in our school system, or at least in our uh, typical school systems today. There especially wasn't, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So if you were talking to a 17-year-old version of John that was thinking he was a, a dumb hillbilly and <laughs> so it's not a New Zealand phrase, so it's funny to say that. Um, and they, they thought they were dumb and they thought that, uh, you know, that there just wasn't a place for them and that they, they were resigned to a life of, you know, not, not being successful, I would say. What would you say to them? How, how would you guide them? The first thing I would say is, look, John, you think you're a dumb hillbilly and only half of that's true. <laughs> yeah. the yardstick by which I measured intelligence was wrong. And that's what I would tell him. I would tell young John, you're measuring intelligence by the same yardstick as these people that, that you don't understand. These, these people in school that never could connect with you. I had a half a dozen teachers throughout my career. In fact, in, in the book I published before this, one, it's dedicated to one of them. A half a dozen of them set me down and said, there's something about you that's special. And they didn't know what it was, you know, but those were the people I should have been paying attention to rather than, you know, the 150 teachers I had 
that said there was something wrong with me. And so I would explain to that person, your measuring system is what's wrong, not your intelligence, not your ability. It's the way you're measuring what is and isn't intelligence. And I would tell that person, have enough confidence to trust yourself. I had this standard for what it meant to be a man. I had this standard for what it meant to be intelligent. I had this standard for what it meant to to be successful. All of those standards were wrong. And I think when you can realize that you don't know what you don't know, it takes all those labels away. It takes all of those uh, stigmas away. And, And you're able to take the lid off of yourself and see what's inside. Those people that can see that there's something worthy inside of you and there's something special inside of you, they're angels, right? Oh, man. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's such a gift because I've been, occasionally I will have it, but I've been wrong before too. I don't, I shouldn't have anything against those teachers that didn't, uh, didn't recognize it in me. I wasn't giving them the best version of myself to look at. But it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a natural ability that those people have. I don't know what vision or what insight it is that they have that see my wife should not have married me. (laughs) I married seven steps above where I should have married. (laughs) I don't know what it is about those people that see that in you. But one thing is, once you're surrounded by those people who do believe in you, it's a great motivator to prove that they were right, that there is something good about you. And it goes against your own story, right? Because I, you, you're not believing those things. And if somebody, anybody can see that in you and believe that, you go, well, there's an inkling that that might be true. Right. Somebody sees something, you know, even if I can't see it, they can see it. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to let go of what you think you know and figure out who it is you're going to trust. Figure out who, whose story it is you're actually willing to listen to. How important have, have mentors, for want of a, a better word, how important have mentors been in, in the transition for you? I think mentors are important in, uh, to everybody's life. <sighs> I found them in, in odd places, you know. That's not to say I don't, you know, I have some really virtual mentors. I'm part of mastermind groups now with some really successful people that I have a ton of respect for. But there are some very low-key by definition, unimportant people in this world that are my mentors, that are a hundred times the person I'll ever be. You'll never know who they are. I Mm. I think the trick isn't um, having or not having mentors, it's choosing them. You know, we've all read certain people's books. You know, we've all listened to certain people's shows. It's hard not to see Joe Rogan pop up on YouTube or or in your podcast or whatever. And I, I think he's great, but Choosing that person is what is important. And, and I was really bad at that. You know, I didn't land in jail because I was surrounded by good people. I started out really bad at choosing the wrong people. And what's tough is you grow accustomed to those people. You justify why you're around those people. You justify the hurt and the poison that is coming from those people. Well, it matches your story of who you think you are. Right. It does. And, and it's a loop. You believe this about yourself, and so do they, and so you act that way, and it causes you to believe that about yourself, and it does. It just, it's a cycle. But it's very hard to take people who are close to you and go, you're not good for me. I need something different. 
and it really gets into character. You know, how, how do you walk away from somebody that you've been so close to and say, you're not the type of person I want to be? I'm not saying you're, you're a bad person, right? I'm not putting you down or saying I'm better than you, but I can't, I can't be around you anymore. It's a really hard thing to do. It's really important. It's hard. Yeah, that, that, is, that is super challenging because you have to, you're outgrowing people which we do, right? We grow, we shift, we change, we transform, we, we have different values. And I think a lot of pain and suffering comes from holding on to people or holding on to those parts of us or the, the past uh, for too long. It's so true. And there's a big part of us that values loyalty. You know, loyalty is really important. Finding who to be loyal to and who not to be loyal to is really important too. And it's, it's difficult. It's really difficult, but it's one of the, I would say it's one of the most important things. I, you know, I told you before this, I'm in the middle of a lawsuit right now, and it had everything to do with my choice, my thoughts about a character, about the character of somebody. I mean, it's one of the hardest things to get right, you know, and as, yeah. as recently as two years ago, I got it wrong. It's, it's super difficult. Tell me about your time in prison. What, what did you learn from prison? <laughs> well, so here in the States, technically, I didn't go to prison. It was just jail. So okay. I, I didn't spend <laughs> enough difference. time in there to, go, to be in prison, but I was next door to some prisons. So one thing I learned, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, the, during this time, he was considered uh, America's toughest sheriff. And he or was uh, reinstituting chain gangs in Arizona where you all get on a chain and clean up the side of the road. He built a prison out right. of tents, you know, tent city in Phoenix where there's, where it's 120 degrees in the summer and they'd had no climate control, you know, and he, he made people wear pink underwear, pink shirts, pink pants. If you were incarcerated, one of the things that I learned from that is it doesn't matter. People thought, oh, the pink underwear is going to be so embarrassing. It's going to make these guys <laughs> never want to come back because they got to wear pink underwear. Everybody's wearing pink underwear. When you go there, the toughest person you know in jail is wearing pink underwear. Murderers, right? Thugs, gang members, like guys that will cut your throat are wearing pink underwear. So while you're there, nobody cares that you're wearing pink underwear. It was one of the most powerful things that I learned. The company that you keep accepts the norm of that end of that society. Making prisoners wear pink underwear doesn't change behavior, right? And I talk about it in my book. When I was being booked into uh, Coconino County, I bumped into a guy that I went to high school with. He was the guard and I was the detainee. And he asked me, what are you doing here? You, you could be a lot better than this. That changed me. That little bit of empathy, that little bit of care and consideration changed my mind. Wearing pink underwear didn't. You mm. know, it really shocked me, the difference between caring and, and empathy and, you know, strict humiliation and discipline. And it showed me at least what worked for me. You know, there's a, most of us have what's called um, psychological reactants, where if somebody says, you better run down the street, your first reaction is, oh, no, I won't. I'll walk. You know, 
uh, as as humans and I think as men, our first reaction to somebody trying to tell us what to do is to do the opposite. Where when somebody puts their arm around you and cares for you, you want to do anything that person thinks you ought to do. That was huge for me. That was huge for me because I was a hammer and everything was a nail. Yeah. And it didn't work on me. Why would it work on anything else? Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, just that little bit of that little bit of empathy, that little bit of care, that little bit of only one person again, it kind of carries on from the teacher thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. When I turned the corner, I had gotten fingerprinted. And when I turned around the corner, I wasn't in a state of mind that was ready to receive revelation and make this big <laughs> change. And I didn't just finish meditating. And, you know, I turned the corner. And after I had gotten fingerprinted, my experience was I turned the corner and they would grab you and shove you around and push you around and let you know they were in charge. And so I turned the corner and I was ready for that. And instead of getting jerked around, I got loved on. And I wasn't ready mentally for that to happen. And man, that hit me harder than any, any other altercations I'd had. Yeah. And so when you left, were you, uh, you know, was that the moment where you thought, right, I, I got to turn things around or is it a longer journey? Yeah, it's a longer journey. Like I tell a lot of people, there's, there was so much wrong with me that there wasn't going to be one moment that fixed it all. You know, if somebody says they had a, an aha breakthrough moment, they didn't have as much going on in their head as I did. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that empathy showed me the power of empathy rather than uh, discipline. But it was just part of it. You know, one at one moment, I woke up in jail and I didn't know if they were letting me out that day or if I was in for 20 years because I didn't remember why I was there. You know, that moment made me want to take control of my own future. There was a million little moments that ratcheted me into where I'm at today. And hopefully they're not over. I, I don't think they are. I, I think anybody that's looking for that one, oh, the light to come down out of the sky and everything in the world to change, this, that isn't how it works. It's not how was it there, works. Was there a rock bottom moment? Uh, I had a few. I slept on, I slept under park benches. I slept in the back of my truck. Those were bad moments, you know, uh, getting picked up on Thanksgiving day was a bad moment. I, I don't believe in the theory that you have to hit rock bottom before you can get better. I, I don't because I've known so many people who they're doing okay and they have a gambling problem. And all of a sudden they have a baby and go, Oh, I, I better have money for this baby. And the gambling stops. I had moments that if it happened to your brother, you'd be humiliated. You know what I mean? If you knew passing out behind bars, I was a bouncer for a while and that didn't go very well. You know, I had lots of moments that were rough to me. There's not one catalyst that changed everything. It was, it was seeing good and then implementing it in my life and taking a, another step up the ladder and then, and then seeing good and implementing that and then seeing bad and doing it and taking those two steps backwards again and, you know, it was three steps forward and two steps back for years for me. So, yeah, it's, it's I, I'm glad you said that because it's 
I think we live in the age of instant gratification or you know social media society. So everybody looks like an overnight success. And you know some people are in different varieties, but I think what we're talking about is fundamentally shifting your identity, who you believe yourself to be and what you believe you're capable of. And if you want to do that, I think that there are probably some some leaps, but it's a slow it's a slow shift to start shifting that identity. For me, I liken it a lot to building a business or writing books or losing weight or all of that is a process. The, the first book I wrote, I was so proud of it. Today, I don't want anybody to have it because it was not good. It was not yeah. good. But I was proud that I could actually sit down and do it. The first business I started, I was so proud of it. I'm a business owner. It went under. It didn't do good, but I was proud of it. Today, I'd never start that business again because I know better, you know. But, but it taught you a lot. It taught me that was so your, much. That was your business school. Yeah, yeah. And I think we just have to be open to the fact that we're, we're on a journey. We're not looking for a finish line. And, and what do you think the balance is between this being somewhat of an inner or a spiritual journey and some of the more practical external things you just have to do, particularly in business? Spiritually, you have to be in the right place I, I think uh, with your identity, you know, with humility, you have to have a lot of the Jim Rohn used to say that success is uh, is like a combination lock, you know, where it might take four numbers and you've got three of them right. Once you hit that fourth number, everything happens. You might have three right and nothing happens. It's still locked. Once you get the fourth one right, it comes open and and everything starts to work. And I feel like spiritually, you've got to have those. You've got to have those numbers right in order to to get where you want to go. But success, at least the levels that I'm familiar with, doesn't happen without the work. You've got to spiritually have your heart in it. You've got to be humble enough to learn. You've got to be smart enough to listen. But you've got to wake up every day and put in the work. And so. If you sit and meditate all day, you will be way more focused than me. But I will outwork you. <laughs> I will be more successful than you because I'm actually doing the work. And so there's a balance that you've got to find between woke, whatever, spiritually ready to improve. You got to put on your work boots and go to work. And how do you do that? Like, how do you stay inspired to do the work? And how do you know what you need to be working on each day? You know, I'm not very organized, so I get help. <laughs> I get a lot of help from, I have the world's best admin in my business. She's outstanding. And in, on, in the business, so they help me stay organized. I'm, I'm pushed and I'm pulled. I'm pushed away from the person that I used to be. That's a huge motivator for me is that I know I'm capable <laughs> of being a bad person. I am. I'm capable of being a guy that I don't, that I wouldn't be proud to look in the mirror at. And I, I run from that person as often as I can. But I'm also pulled, I'm pulled towards it because I, I know I'm capable of being a whole lot better than I am too. And so there's, there's an opposition for me to run away from what I could be and run towards what I also could be. I look at people. I love Andy Andrews. I don't know how familiar you are with Andy Andrews. No, I don't know who that is. New York Times bestselling author. He's written 
I don't want to exaggerate, somewhere in the neighborhood of five or seven New York Times bestsellers, um, The Traveler's Gift, um, The Noticer. He's written some amazing books. As a young man, he lived under a bridge. He was homeless. And another bum, right, another homeless guy kind of buddied up with him and got to know him and said, you don't belong here. Like, just like Kenny did for me in jail. Said, Andy, you, you don't, you're not one of us. And he drug him to the library and he made him start reading uh, biographies. And he read over a hundred biographies and wrote his first book. There's so much in Andy Andrews story that is just crazy inspiring to me. And if I, if I have any level of success, I have to attribute a ton of it to him because he made me realize that there's no, there's not a limit on what you can become, you know, but you can look around everywhere. He's my guy, you know, but I have a bunch of other guys. I have Seth Godin that I love Malcolm Gladwell. Unbelievable. You know, I have a lot of different, I love Eminem. I love Eminem. There's a lot of people that I to look to for motivation, but if you don't have, I feel like if you don't have that inner drive, to not be your worst and to shoot for your best. I don't know if it really matters who you're inspired by. Yeah. It's an interesting balance. I think you have to go on your own path and, and, and find what moves you. Something has to move you. Something has to, like you said, pull you forward. And I think it's really interesting that balance because you, you seem to me to be a guy that is quite content, has a lot of inner peace and I'm sure it varies day to day like all of us, but you don't look like somebody that's, you know, running away from, you know, parts of themselves. You look like somebody that's, you know, been very comfortable with where they've come from and some of the things they've done and don't want to go back there. So use that as a driver. And also at the other end, constantly looking to improve and aspire and be pulled forward to who you want to become. Yeah. We went to a Tony Robbins event and one of the things that he says is, is I created this guy standing on the stage right now. I built him. I like to think naturally I'm not comfortable. I'm not confident. I'm not, but I've worked to become that way. I've worked to look in the mirror because like I said, people in, in prison are innocent, successful people are guilty. And so I've looked in the mirror and had to say, look, this is who I am. And I'm going to let everybody know and just let the chips fall where they may. Yes. So much power in that. So much power in that honesty and and truth and not trying to, you know, pretend to be someone, but sort of, you know, admitting you know nothing. The more we can admit that we know nothing about anything, yeah. the, the more we can stay open and curious. What does influence mean to you? And why has that been an important factor in your life? Influence. Oh, this is, this is such a funny story. To me, influence is anytime somebody considers another person or an activity or a device prior to making a decision. Right. So anytime that we apply for a job, we're exerting our influence on them. Right. Anytime we build a business, we're influencing the people who work for us, the customers that choose to use us. Influence is massive to me. When I started, it was the only thing I feel like it was the only thing that I had that got me out of the mess that I was in because I was able to influence my way into some decent jobs, right? I was able to influence my way into conversations with people that if they knew who I really was, they, would, they wouldn't they would even talk to me. 
but I was able to approach people and talk to them and learn from them because I, I had enough influence over them to, to do that. Influence has been huge. And so people feel like influence is persuading other people to do what you want, to do your bidding, and it isn't. It's not. Influence is when Kenny put his arm, he didn't figure, he didn't literally put his arm around me, but when Kenny said, man, you're better than this, that was massive influence for me. Massive. And that's, what, a four-word sentence? So for me, that's a great place to start. In fact, I would, I would challenge people to consider what type of influence they have first before they set out to do anything, you know? Just to try and understand uh, where they can influence or who they can influence. Right. Or how. How best can they influence? Some people can influence behind a pulpit. Some people can influence with their mouth shut and a spreadsheet, right? Some people can influence uh, with their art, and some people can influence with a conversation. If you don't know your, your levels of influence, your abilities of influence, you're going to fight yourself. You're going to struggle to try to get anything that, that you want. You know, I know, I know. I am a visionary and I can influence people to look at tomorrow. I'm horrible at spreadsheets. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to influence you. Everything is a, is a guesstimation for me. I can show you how to make about 11% in the stock market. That's the end of it, right? I'm not going to, Dave Ramsey can sit down and put down to the nickel you know, what you're going to make and how you're going to do and what day it's going to happen. And he can influence people that way. I, I can influence people different ways. So I think knowing that about yourself is huge and understanding how to do it is really huge. You know, there's, I, I, I don't want to get too political, but we have a president right now that does not use his potential influence to the best of his ability. And I see it every time I open Twitter. I see it every time I turn on the news. He has the potential. He has the potential to be an incredible influencer. And he is, to a degree. In my mind, he's doing it completely wrong. And I yeah, have science to back it up. in the wrong way. Yeah. And we live in the age of the influencer, they say. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, Godin, like Seth Godin says, you know, the industrial revolution's over. And yeah. we are in the connection economy. Influence is the is the medium. It's the it's the standard. Yeah, and attention. You know, it's just uh, in the they have a Starbucks Reserve just down the road from me, which is like a a really fancy Starbucks. You know, it's very very New York. Uh, <laughs> it's this, this massive massive Starbucks, and just I was just sort of sitting there for an hour watching people. And, you know, the kids were on their devices, people were on their phones, uh, they were in a hurry, they're rushing around. And it's like, hmm, you know, this is interesting that the battle is for attention now. We're, we're swamped with content and just uh, information coming at us from all angles. And so if you can catch somebody's attention for 30 seconds, three minutes, five minutes, an hour, that's huge. Yeah, yeah. And... Here's what's crazy about our society, too, is we're, we're just wrong about it. We're just wrong about who should have our influence. And I try not to be dogmatic <laughs> about many things, but I've learned researching for the last book I, I wrote, 
we're letting the wrong things and the wrong people influence us for the wrong reasons. You know, we're forever in the trap of following people, you know, and the more followers they have, the more we want to follow them. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the case even, even 200 years ago. That's not what it was. We, we measured people on a different scale, you know, 200 years ago. We didn't care how many other people followed them. We cared what the ideas were. You, you know what I mean? We cared what value they brought to the table. And that's such a buzz phrase, right? I want to add value. I want to bring value. But society looks for the biggest group to follow and, and they jump in and follow it today. The internet's breaking it. You know, we spent, we spent 50 years with just a few numbers of television channels and the, the most popular television channel was the one you wanted to watch because obviously they had the best shows. And so we have spent a majority of our time training our brains to think, to go where the group goes. And now the internet's broken that group into a million different little subsets. And so we're on the right track. We're on the right path. But I think it takes some awareness for us to go, wow, why, why is she on my Instagram feed? She has nothing to say, but I listen to her every day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, one of the things I did on Facebook is I went through and unfollowed just about everybody. So it's like a, a news feed that's pretty light, you know, it's just a handful of people that I, I pay attention to. And I probably, I, I think I can go even deeper on that actually, but just really, because I noticed like a lot of what I was doing was just, you know, causing me to compare myself and uh, just not feel good, right? Like just, and just taking in too, too many different parts of information. Like I think we need to be focusing on what we're putting out, like focus on what you want to create and what you want to whether it is speaking, whether it is podcasting, whether it is art, whether it is writing, or nothing to do with the internet, you know, yeah. focus on what you want to put out, what, what your output is, and stop focusing on taking so much in. When you're taking stuff in, that's, that's a block to your own creativity and what you want to put out. You're, you're being influenced by everything else but your own inner, you know, creativity, your own imagination, your own whatever that, that thing is that's trying to channel through you, you're blocking it up by following a million different people and taking in all these different things. So I think there's room for it. You know, I think, like you said, people like Seth Godin and stuff, you, you, you cultivate the ones that resonate with you and you, you intentionally take in that information. But there has to be a time when you put that down and stop and, and become the creator. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And one of the one of the fundamental rules, one of the fundamental laws of influence is the law of reciprocity. That when you walk through Costco, let's say, do they have Costco in New York? I'm, I don't know. When you walk through a store, probably, yeah. probably New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's always somebody handing out free samples, right? Well, the free sample is a trigger to make you want to buy what they have. The law of reciprocity says that when you give something as a general rule, that's what you get back. It's karma. It's however you want to say it. It's real, right? If you're constantly following, you have nothing to give. There's nothing to give. And so you can't be influential if you're constantly following somebody. So you're 100% right. At least the science says that if you don't have anything to give, 
<laughs> then you'll never you'll never be influential. I want to talk about your uh, book. I want to get the name right here. It's called Sway, The Link Between Autism and Influence. So we touched on the influence uh, bit a little bit, but why is autism important to you? Why, why does that you know, come up for you? This was a learning experience too. This is my fifth book. The first four, I wrote all of them, you know, within a year, some of them six months. This one took me two years. I set out to write a book on influence because I thought I was pretty good at it. You know, I'd spent 20 years going from, you know, one level in life to another, whatever. So I thought, I know what the world needs from me. They need me to write a book on influence. So my arrogance led me to research influence. And as I did, as I researched the history of influence, as I researched the science behind influence, every corner I turned around, I found autism. You know, we... We wouldn't have the computer if it wasn't for autism. We wouldn't have physics if it wasn't for autism. We wouldn't have the financial systems that we have if it wasn't for autism. Some of the most influential people in history have, have had autism. I couldn't ignore the piece of this puzzle that was autism. And so I started studying autism and I realized that it's only been recently that and it's a Western thing, too, that people with autism, at least Asperger's and high-functioning autism, it's only a Western thing that we consider them disabled. But in, in some of the most horrible societies ever, people with autism were counselors, right? Societies that would sacrifice humans, literally, not figuratively, literally, would see autism as a gift. Those people were special. You didn't touch them. Aztecs, Incans, in the book, the, the first chapter of the book, or the introduction of the book, Ivan the Terrible, who was arguably one of the worst humans to live, had one counselor, and that was Basil. And Basil was obviously, obviously on the spectrum. Well, why is it that this murderer, Ivan the Terrible, murdered his own son because his son got mad at him because Ivan punched his son's pregnant wife in the belly and caused the miscarriage of his own grandson. And so when Ivan's son got upset about it, Ivan killed him for being upset. Ivan was a hideous, horrible, I mean, just deplorable person. And he looked at Basil with autism and said, there's something special about that person. Hmm. We, as a society, look at the same person and say, he's disabled put him in a special ed class. How did somebody that horrible get autism right and we get it wrong? It took me two years to write this book because I had to change what I thought I knew about influence, what I thought I knew about society, what I thought I knew about autism for this message to really come to fruition. We're missing the boat. So you really want to change the conversation around autism? Yeah, we, we need to. We need to. I mean, ethically... Ethically, we need to treat people good. You know what I mean? We need to have that empathy for everybody, not just people who we think are neurotypical, you know, not just people who are like us. You know, one of the things I tell people a lot is every time we try to create normal, we're wrong. You know, there was a time where men were normal and women and kids were property, and that was wrong. And there was a time where we, in this country, we said, okay, white's normal and everything else is not. And we're 
changing that. Well, today, neurotypical is normal and anything outside of that's not. And every time we try to define normal, we get it wrong because there's not normal. And that's what we need to consider is horrible people got it right and we are missing the boat. Yeah. Wow. It's so interesting. What 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 was the thing that put you onto this? What how did you get interested in it? It was the story of Ivan the Terrible. It was the the story of Ivan Ivan the Terrible whose yeah, whose counselor was Basil, who had autism. And then I turn the corner and say one of the most influential devices of our time has been the computer, right? And so I traced the origins of the computer back to a man named Alan Turing, who essentially single-handedly he at least shaved two years off of World War II, if not, well, he shaved two years off. Yeah, of I remember World the, the the movie with, uh, I can't remember the actor's name. But Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. yeah, phenomenal movie. Yep, it's called The uh, Imitation Game. And it's, mm. it's named after Alan Turing's doctrinal thesis, I think. Mm. But essentially, he invents the computer to break the code of enigma. That was autism. Everything about Alan Turing screams autism. Isaac Newton, one of the comparisons, so the book is I take somebody from history who had the opportunity at, at influence and failed, and then we find somebody from history who had the opportunity at influence and succeeded, and we dissect them. Why? Scientifically, why did this person fail and this person succeed? And every case for success for successful influence falls down on the same side as autism. They have the same traits as autism. They have the same chemical. You know, we, we have uh, oxytocin. It, it's a real popular molecule these days. Uh, yeah. We respond to oxytocin because of the, the hit that it gives us in social interactions. That hit causes us to lie. That hit causes us to stretch the truth. That hit causes us to kind of do things that would make us lose influence. They're not affected by oxytocin. They have either fewer oxytocin receptors or less oxytocin in their body, people with autism do, than, than neurotypicals do, which means they can stand up on a stage and tell you the truth. Right, where we, because they're not getting a hit from, from lying or from... Exactly. When, right. right, that's so interesting. So I couldn't deny it, it was everywhere I turned that there was autism. And so mm. I think it's time we have a different conversation about people on the spectrum and really probably everybody, but you've got to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, this is a good start, just understanding what a gift it is yeah. and understanding what some of the gifts can be. What would you say to a parent of an autistic child that's struggling? Because I know just firsthand, it can be very challenging. I've talked to a lot of them and here's what's tough when you say the word autism, it's a spectrum. So there are people who are deep in the spectrum. I am not qualified to talk to those people. <laughs> you know what I mean? When, when physically autism impairs your daily functions, I'm not the, I'm not the expert on it. I, I don't have any right to speak to that. Socially, if people are impaired socially because they have autism, I can speak to that. And to most parents, and I've had the opportunity now to talk to quite a few, most parents who have a child on the spectrum I don't teach them, they teach me. You know, they tell me, you can't imagine how rewarding my life has been because I've learned from 
you know, my son or daughter, they usually, if there's somebody struggling, in my experience, if there's somebody struggling with a child with autism, either that that their child is deep on the spectrum or what they're really struggling with is the society around their child, the school, you know, the kids at uh, daycare, right? The kids in church. If, if it's a high functioning autism or an Asperger situation, they're usually not struggling with the kid. They're struggling with the world the kid lives in. Our, but that's what we need to change. Yeah. You know, my, my kids, when they were little, they didn't care. There was no social stigma, right? They would walk up to any kid and talk to them. They would play catch with any kid. They didn't have these limits, right? And as they got older, society and probably us trained them that, oh, that kid's special. You know what I mean? Or oh, And we trained that natural empathy for everybody out of them. And we're trying real hard to train it back, back into them now, now that I've learned what I've learned. But uh, usually those parents are, are magical people. Well, that's so beautiful, isn't it? That's, uh, I love how that, that, that was the insight that you found was not struggle, but uh, parents that were we're learning a lot. It's, it's really, really beautiful. John, I've learned so much today. Thank you. You know, I've learned uh, that one little comment, one little empathetic moment in someone's life could mean the world to them. You know, you've really taught me to, to keep that beginner's mindset and that, uh, you know, being a stupid hillbilly can sometimes be an advantage because <laughs> it allows you to, to be open to learning things. And uh, just, just learning about a little bit about autism there and, and uh, just the way you've brought all of the things you've talked about together in your own life to create this book, beginner's mindset, open to learning something new, having empathy for something that society maybe is is not empathetic towards. Um, So thanks for modeling everything you're teaching. It's really, really, really powerful. Well, I appreciate it. And you know, you're, you're a great example of it too. I went to podcast movement a few weeks ago and I, while you're there, you subscribe to a hundred different podcasts and (laughs) I've since unsubscribed to most of them, but not yours. I I really enjoyed yours because you, you model, a lot of what I learned writing this book. So thank you for what you do. Thanks, man. That's, uh, that's very special. Thank you. Uh, last question, just to, uh, to wrap things up. In this moment right now, you know, in, the, in this present moment, what is your dark side? What's the, the dark part of you that you still got to watch out for? And is there a way that you've learned to embrace the darker parts of yourself? Yeah. Uh, when you sit across the table from a therapist, they call it passion. <laughs> I, I care deeply about everything both ways. So my younger road rage, my younger self was prone to fights and anger. That's not part of me anymore, but I still wake up with it every day. You know, it's not a popular thing to say about yourself, but that's my, that's my skeleton in the closet is I have to stop myself from getting upset, really upset about things. And meditation helps, you know, when you hit your wagon to a cause like autism, you don't get to be the angry guy anymore. So that helps, but that's it. Well, that rage or that anger, have you found a way to channel that? Do you, you know, cause I believe, especially around anger, you know, sometimes through meditation, we can kind of hide it a little bit instead of dealing with it. We can kind of push it down as opposed to finding healthy ways, whether it's some people put it into the gym. Some people, you know, punch a pillow for 20 minutes. To, to Have you found any ways to, to move the anger through you? Yeah, I, I try not to let it out. I try to re, I try to shift what I think. You know what I mean? I, 
I mean, I know the situations are going to make me angry and I try to avoid them. Number one, number two, if I'm angry, most of the time it's third world problems. If somebody cut me off in traffic, I'm in a $60,000 vehicle driving 70 miles an hour down a freeway. And my problem is I want to go 75. That's, that's a first world. That's a rich person problem. You know what I mean? If my sprinklers are broken, I'm upset because I can't spray clean water on the dirt outside my house. That's a rich person problem. So yeah, I just try to, that's how I deal with or try to deal with it. Beautiful. Uh, John, hold up the book again. It's called Sway, The Link Between <laughs> Autism and Influence. I know you got a copy there. Where can people get the book now? Can people find you if they want to learn more? So there we go. That's what the cover looks like. You can find me on Facebook, you know, and, and a little bit on Twitter. I've got a johnhenderson.org is my website. The book's for sale on Amazon. And right now it's half price. And I really, really want to, uh, I really want to start the conversation. I'm more interested in starting the conversation. Books don't make you money. And this isn't a book to fill up any kind of funnel. This isn't a book to get me more clients. There's nothing in there. There's no pitches in there. I want, I want to have a conversation. So I, I'm, I'm just as happy giving a million free versions of it away to, to people as I am. John, appreciate it. We'll put up a link to the uh, the book and, and Amazon in the comments. But thanks for coming along. Thanks for spending the time with us. Well, thank you, buddy. I'm just honored to be be here and be a part of it. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Uh, thank you, guys. Thanks for tuning in as always. Great to have you here. And uh, if you think someone would get something out of this, if you want to get uh, into this conversation around autism or you want to reach out to John, uh, follow him on Facebook. The link is in the uh, top of the post here. And we'll put the link to the book and Amazon. And yeah, like the post you around, feel free to leave a comment and I'll be back next week. That was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.